me, I'm Michelle. And I'm Dana Marie, and we are Empowered to Advocate. Our goal is to help parents and caregivers uh, navigate the often confusing special education process so that they can become the best advocates for their children. Tune in every Friday for your tip, tool, or strategy that can be implemented right away so you feel confident and empowered to be the best advocate for your child. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Empowered to Advocate podcast. This is Michelle, and I'm joined here with Dana Marie and a very special guest for this episode. This is our first guest guest episode, so this makes it even more special. Um, so big welcome to Karen Roy, who I have the pleasure of working with, and she is a behavior extraordinaire. And we're going to kind of dig into what that is, what that means, and why you might at some point care about getting to know a BCBA or a board certified behavior analyst for your child. So Karen, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. So why don't you start with um, a little bit about who you are and just a very brief, like if you were going to give an elevator pitch about what a BCBA is and does for the people so they have an understanding. So my background actually is in general education. I went to school convinced that I was going to be a first grade teacher for the rest of my life. I taught first grade for about three months in a private Catholic school <laughs> and I left. Um and I went to work in a residential school for children with autism, where I absolutely fell in love with the population. And I got my master's degree in severe special ed, started teaching and did life skills and wanted to get my BCBA, um, which I actually didn't know was a thing until I started working at the residential school. So um, did my courses and here I am in the public school system. So yay. Yeah. <laughs> so in short, a behavior analyst um, is somebody who assesses the reason behind a behavior is giving a child or an individual, it can be an adult too. Um, you know, the ABA therapy is based on um, the science of learning and behavior um, and how we can change behaviors of social significance, which is very different for everybody. Um, you know, it's very individualized and what one family may think is socially significant, another family may not. Um, but that's really essentially what it is. Do And we develop treatment plans based on the principles of ABA, applied behavior analysis, um, to change behavior, good or bad. It doesn't have to be a bad behavior that we're changing. It can be something that we're trying to see more of in an individual as well. Great. So what types of behaviors do you generally help students make progress with or reduce or increase? And how does that support them in accessing their education? Well, so if you think about it as behavior is communication, that's my favorite phrase to say in every single meeting I think we've ever been in together. Um, typically, a behavior is exhibited because that individual has learned um that that is the fastest and easiest and most convenient way for them to get what they want. Um, it's my job to teach them 
Otherwise, you know, you don't have to hit me to get the break. You can request a break. That I do focus on is while we're targeting something for decrease, you want to also target something for increase so that you're teaching them a new skill. Um, so we're targeting decreasing hitting to escape work. We're also going to target increasing the request for a break. And that doesn't have to be verbal if the child is non-speaking. It can be a picture, it can be sign language, it can be a voice output device, all the, the above. I mean, many ways to be universally understood for everybody in their environment. Yeah, so I think one thing that can be difficult for parents, caregivers, and other team members to understand is that in your role in a school as the BCBA, you're not the one 100% of the time working on these behaviors and skills with the, the students that you work with or with the kids in the school. And so if you could kind of like explain to, to us in our audience what that looks like, if you develop a plan list, how does it get from you to actually the child whose behaviors we're looking to decrease or increase? What are the steps? Who are the other people involved in that? trajectory, that process? I mean, it's really a team approach, right? So everything that we're targeting for change in any area of a, a child's treatment, um, it really involves the entire team and being consistent with, with kids in the entire team. Um, um, so I am the one who designs the intervention, um, mostly because I know the science behind what I do. Um, I have gone to school for it just as if, you know, a teacher designs an IEP because they went to school for it, you know. Um, so I designed that intervention and it depends on the school district. So BCBAs within the public school realm are still actually kind of like a new thing in a lot of districts. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of districts don't really know how to effectively make use of a BCBA. Um, they don't really typically understand the role. They don't know what an RBT is, which is a registered behavior technician. Um, if, if we're lucky enough, you know, the school that I work in is lucky enough to have BCBAs, at least one in every school. They have at least one RBT in every school. Um, and it's it's nice um, to see that because we have very clearly defined roles. So my role within the school district is a consult model. So I provide consultation to the teachers um, and the paras as well, um, who support the students in the classroom every day. Um, I have a lot of students on my caseload, so if I tried to see all of them for, you know, 30, 40 minutes a week or a day, it wouldn't be enough um, for me to, it would just wouldn't be enough for them. They need it consistently throughout their whole day. Um, so really, we are a team, and it's my job to train my behavior technician, and then it's our job as a behavior team. We lovingly refer to ourselves as the behavior squad. <laughs> at our school, <laughs> but it is our job to then train the teachers, the administration, the um, team chairs, the support personnel, even the custodians sometimes on how to manage behaviors um, with this particular student or with that particular student, um, because they're going to be the ones that are implementing that throughout the day. Um, there is a very detailed plan writ up, written up. So if the student does this, this is how you're going to respond. Um, here's how your tone of voice is going to be. Here's how much eye contact you're going to give a student or, or not. Here's how much attention you're going to give a student or not. Um, when you're going to reinforce that student, when you're going to try to 
ignore as best as you can and just repeat the directive. Um, so there's a very detailed plan written up. That plan is then distributed to the classroom staff. We review it. It's always also distributed to the parents so the parents know what is going on at school and how we are managing behaviors at school. Um, and a data sheet is made so that we can track data. I am a self-described data nerd and I am proud of it. Yes, we love that. <laughs> we do love that. <laughs> um, the more data, the better. Um, and so that data actually really helps me see if interventions are working or not. Mm. Um, and that data will drive future interventions that I decide to make. Um, and anytime a plan is changed, even in the slightest, parents need to be notified. They need to have a copy of the newest plan just so that they are on the same page because they are in many ways the most vital component of this team. Yes. We talk about that a lot. The team process um, <clears throat> being a very collaborative process and it should be truly a team where you have caregivers, outside service providers, the school team all being on one team and that is the student's team, right? And as students get older and as early as possible, also having the students as part of their team and having input um, into what their plans might look like um, to be supportive of them, to help them feel motivated to stay in class longer. Thinking, you know, um, some middle school kids that might have um, difficulty asking for a break that might just get up and leave class, um, helping them understand why that might not be safe for them to do while also teaching them how to request the break, right? So how do you figure out what interventions could possibly work to help modify a behavior to be a safer way of communicating? What, what would be the first step for a team, including the parents, um, to kind of come together and figure out what intervention we're going to try first? Um, well, so the interventions are really based on the research. Um, every intervention that is in place and approved through the ABA process, it's, it's done in a laboratory first. It's managed and it's collected, you know, data is collected on it. And um, they really try to see if it is something that can be replicated over and over and over and over again. Okay. Um, so ABA is a very research-based um, methodology, which is why it's kind of coming under a little bit of skepticism at the moment. But, um, you know, it is, it is good in that we have all of this data and all of this research to say, like, we know that this will change behavior. Um, what I like about ABA, especially recently in the, the last year or so, is there's been a really big focus on um, the compassionate ABA mm -hmm. and, and trauma-informed care. And it's starting to recognize, so before, ABA was all like, if we can observe it and measure it, we can change it. Um, and now they're starting to realize that there is an internal component. We can't really see it. We can't really observe it. But, you know, there are interventions that we can use. So the interventions that we use are really based on the research and what the research tells us. And, and we find okay. these things in like the Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis. Uh, and we have a whole library of like all these things that we are, <laughs> are able to research. Um, 
And we're constantly held to high ethical standards of making sure that we're current on the research so that we can provide the best interventions. So the first step in really determining any kind of intervention is doing the assessment because the assessment will tell us why or primarily why we think this individual might be engaging in this behavior. And there's really four main reasons that have been discussed historically in EBA, which is kind of coming to like six, maybe seven reasons and functions okay. now. Um, but those haven't been like officially added. So that's why I kind of say it with a little hesitation. Um, <laughs> but the four main functions, if you just can remember, take a seat, sensory, escape, attention, intangible. Um, so sensory is something internal. It feels good to them. It makes them feel good. Um, attention. They want appear attention. They love, you know, saying snarky comments in class because all the peers laugh at them. Um, and they think that they're like funny and popular. Um, they want adult attention. Um, and attention can be positive or negative. It doesn't matter sometimes. Sometimes they look for both positive and negative attention um, just to get attention. Um, escaping work, escaping a certain teacher, escaping a certain person, escaping a certain environment um, is another function. And then gaining access to something tangible that they want to do, a preferred activity, a preferred person, a preferred environment. Um, I am also very big on FBAs, so functional behavior assessments that we do mm -hmm. in public schools. They really only capture a snapshot of the student's profile. Um, so it's really important for parents to know as part of like the planning the intervention that we really should be planning interventions for all of those functions because at any time it can be maintained by any one of those. Mm -hmm. And the assessment only shows us, well, out of the two or three hours that I observed them, it was mostly this, but at times it was also this and at times it was also this. So it's really important to remember that it can be any um, function at any given time. So planning in advance for those functions will really, um, will really help the student. Um, so that's really the first step in planning the intervention is, is really doing the assessment and figuring out primarily what is the reason behind this behavior. Um, and then I always, always, always put some type of communication training in there, uh, even okay. if it's a fully verbal child, um, a fully, in terms of, you know, cognitive ability, grade level, fine. Um, there may not be any like significant learning gaps, mm -hmm. but for whatever reason, when they're upset or when they're angry about something, that's when we see this, you know, behavior coming out instead of the communication. So teaching students how to use their words or how to use some type of signal um, if they don't want to be called out in front of their peers or any necessarily different in front of their peers. Um, involving the student, like you said, as much as possible. Um, I've done that with a lot of students. Um, and this year, particularly, I have one who is very involved in designing his own interventions. And we give him options and we're this is what we can do. We can do this or this. Um, and that's, and he chooses. So um, giving him that power, giving families that power. This is, these are our options. This is how we can go about it. Um, and I think that where I work is so diverse 
in the their cultures and their own belief systems that managing a behavior can't just be science. It also has to take in to account the, like the personal aspect of the family and, and the student um, and how to go about behaviors and, and how they are managed. Um, thank you, first of all, for not shying away from the controversy around <laughs> um, just it, it's important around ABA, around sort of behavior intervention in general. You know, um, we in conversations with parents and caregivers on our social media, on the podcast, we don't typically shy away from challenging, difficult topics, especially if they're ones that are, um, you know, in the media or like you said, right in the last year, particularly, um, we've seen lots of news articles and sort of media attention around APA and just behavior and intervention in general. So thank you for um, bringing that up. That is certainly a conversation for another podcast and we, we, we don't have enough time to get we into it <laughs> today. Um, but, but it's important because, you know, we do work with parents and caregivers who um, don't prefer an ABA approach um, for folks working with, with their children, whether they are in the public school, in a private school, like you said, in a residential um, school um, or outside the public school system. So it's important to just acknowledge and recognize that that is a conversation happening, um, not just in schools, but like you said, in universities and research facilities, so on and so forth. And, and there's still a lot to learn, um, obviously, at the intersection of ABA and intervention and, and working with young people anyway. So thank you for bringing that up. I have sort of an offshoot of a question um, from that that I've been thinking about because I actually met you when you were a teacher in a substantially separate um, program in a life skills classroom many years ago. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I guess my question is, how did being a teacher working with students with more significant disabilities, how does that inform or how did that inform your practice uh, and moving into a BCBA role, which like you said, is more consultative, you know, more working on, on teams and in, in a quote unquote office. Um, but how did your work over the course of those five years teaching in that setting in those classrooms, um, how did that inform your work now? Yes. Um, and I think that it's, good because I very frequently run into, well, you don't know what it's like in a classroom. And because of my experience, I can kind of be like, oh, contraire. (laughs) (laughs) And I had many, many a year's experience in a classroom. Um, And I had anywhere from two and a half to 10 students and anywhere from two to for Paris. Um, so, you know, I like the fact that I can draw on the classroom experience that I had because I look at teachers and I said, I was you. I, I was you. Mm-hmm. I do understand the, the general ed population. It's a little harder for me to relate to because I taught them for three months. Um, but I also do try to empathize with their situation. You know, they have very large class sizes and they're they're not trained. And, and general education teachers coming out of college still don't have behavior training. And they still don't have special education training. A mm-hmm. lot of them, what is an IEP? What is a 504? What does this even mean? And I mean, sidebar, it's kind of my dream to design a college course geared towards gen ed teachers. Yes. Um, 
to educate them on the modern day classroom and how they're going to have kids who flip desks. They're going to have kids with autism. They're going to have kids with social emotional disabilities. They're going to have all of these kids in their class. It's not just going to be 18 to 20 kids who sit perfectly at desks and maybe a class clown. Um, it's just not the modern day classroom anymore. Right. Um, so I think that drawing like that knowledge, I think has helped me really kind of empathize with the teachers and also kind of gain their trust that I like kind of know what I'm talking about because I do know, you know, I was in their shoes and I always tell them there's a level of doability and effectiveness when it comes to behavior plans. And the most doable plan is not going to be, or sorry, the most effective plan is not going to be the most doable and the most mm-hmm. doable plan is not going to be the most effective. Mm-hmm. So we kind of have to find this balance with the seesaw. Um, and I think that they respect that a lot. Um, I also really try to educate myself on the classrooms that I go into, um, you know, the profile of the learners that are in there, um, even the one that I'm not, even ones that I'm not assessing necessarily, um, the teacher um, and their, their teaching style. Um, I kind of look around the room. I'm like, is there a schedule here somewhere? Mm-hmm. What kind of like discipline do they have going on? Is it a visual system? And I've got in where like teachers have like the red, green, yellow check chart. And I'm like, oh, I don't like that necessarily. But I yeah. think that's what you're taught as behavior management 101 is to like, not like publicly shame because I feel like that's a bad term, but like almost like visually represent where they are mm-hmm. in their behavior. And it's like under the guise of like, we're teaching them to self-regulate, mm-hmm. but it's really just kind of like, Oh, but so and so is in red, so they lost recess or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. It's just, but it's more punitive, right? Like it's more punitive, and like, but teachers aren't given alternatives. I know, even to this yep. day, they're not given alternatives in their coursework. So, I mean, we can't really expect them to just kind of like know not to do that. Exactly. So, um, so apologize. <laughs> Yes, I think that's a really good point, too. So I will say one thing I've noticed in the last couple of years is I am seeing lots of folks um, at all different grade levels um, kind of move away from those sort of more punitive Mm -hmm. styles um, of behavior management that, you know, the we all know the red, green, yellow. We all know the charts, like who's in the danger zone, who's not in the danger zone, all that kind of stuff. See lots of people moving away from that, lots of teachers moving away from that, which is obviously great for a lot of different reasons. Um, but I guess what I, I want to go back to, because I, I love the idea of a college course for general education <laughs> teachers. Um, I guess I guess the question is, what do you wish, um, what do you wish that general education teachers were taught in their, you know, undergraduate, right? So we're maybe 18 to 22 year olds, right? that are going into education, elementary, you know, high school, it doesn't really matter. But what do you wish that they were taught as a part of their programming, especially when it comes to working with children with diverse needs, which obviously we all do here. But like you said, sometimes gen ed teachers aren't super expecting to work with really diverse populations of of students uh, on the needs spectrum and get surprised um, when, like you said, they don't just have a class of 20 kids sitting at desks in rows, hands folded, ready to learn. What are some of the things that you, from a BCBA perspective, wish that 
those folks were taught in their undergraduate or graduate programs for that matter. I feel like the biggest thing um, is that behavior core subject. Um, you know, behavior needs to be taught in the same way you would teach math, teach, mm. teach English. It's no longer, you know, math is, is, you know, you learn the concept, you are repeatedly exposed to it. You are taught, repeat, repeat, model, taught, repeat, like, and then it's behavior. We're going to punish, 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 punish. <laughs> like that's like such an old school way of thinking about it. And by nobody's fault. I mean, I, I feel like behavior is still new to be addressed in the public schools. Mm -hmm. Um, and I say that because I'm like, you know, when I was in school, it was still like kids with special needs weren't included. We didn't see them. We maybe saw them at lunch and recess, maybe. Mm -hmm. um, I actually remember one student in particular, um, but he was the only student that I knew. And we were all like, what do you mean he's 22 and still in our school? Like, how does that happen? I thought you graduated at 18. Mm -hmm. um, that was when I went to school. I feel like I'm not that old. Um, <laughs> it's true. So, so but, like, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, like, things have come a long way in terms of being more inclusive and being more thoughtful about not just, oh, the student has a disability. We're going to usher them away to, mm -hmm. you know, the little room down the hall, right? Um, I think that you're right. We have come a long way. Um, but also remembering that there's still so far to go. And part of that is how do we, in our teacher prep courses and mm. programs, better prepare teachers to have a wide variety of different learners and learning styles and communication needs and communication abilities and so on and behavior needs how can we better prepare them? Which is what you're. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I truly think that like they need to realize that there are methods to teaching behavior that aren't just let's give them consequences. Let's punish them. Mm -hmm. And the biggest thing I still come across to this day is, well, this is great and all that he can just leave class whenever he wants. Um, and as long as he goes to his designated spot, it's great. Um, where are the consequences? That's the, most frequent mm. question I get. Well, like, we're not focused on the consequences right now. We're focused on getting him to a, a space where he's regulated enough to be in your class. And if that means he has to miss 20 minutes of a 50 minute block, yeah, okay, I'm sure he misses a lot of instruction, but he's also gaining behavioral skills that he didn't have before. And he's not walking out of the building and going home mm -hmm. um you know so he's not missing the rest of his day he's missing 20 minutes out of your class you know five minutes out of your class whatever it is he's learning these coping strategies and i feel like that social emotional education is so important for teachers it's because i mean the reality of it is like if you go to school for severe special ed or even moderate special ed, you're given all of these tools. Like you're given all of these tools. You're, you're well prepared for any type of behavior that may come in across your classroom. And then they're like, oh yeah, but BCBAs are a thing now in public school. So you, you'll probably have this person to support. And that's mm -hmm. not always the case. Um, and it's certainly not always the case in a general education setting mm -hmm. where a student might have a diagnosis, but just because they have a diagnosis doesn't mean 
I necessarily need to be involved. Um, you know, but if I'm not involved, the teachers sometimes don't know what to do because they're not informed on autism. They're not informed on communication disabilities that require speech services. They're not informed on any of this. So like having, you know, guest speakers come to the agenda ed classroom yeah. or like having type, some type of panel discussion with a bunch of ancillary service providers so that it can be like a Q&A conversation. Like if this comes up in my class, how would, how would you support me or how would I get this support or how do I access these services? Um, I didn't even know these services existed, <laughs> you know? <laughs> A lot of teachers are just like, what do you mean there's social workers in our school? That's cool. Um, it's just eye-opening to this day that, like, there's so much education and, and concern around this topic, especially the social-emotional population right now, um, because there are so many more kids being diagnosed with social-emotional disorders because of, you know, COVID and the, and the lockdown and um, all the trauma that results, resulted from that. Um, it, it's kind of shocking to me <clears throat> that there's still not any type of education, um, and there's still not any type of like attempt to put that education into people who are looking to become teachers. And so as a result of that lack of education, we're seeing a high burnout rate of teaching staff and teachers mm -hmm. who thought that they would love to be teachers for the rest of their lives because they love kids and they want to help kids. They don't know how to help the modern day child because they weren't equipped with the tools in their education courses. And I feel like that is where we're failing as a system right now. I think that's such a good point. I think of myself and I are around the same age and I went through a graduate program for moderate to special needs. That's what my master's degree in, is in. And as you're talking, I'm trying to think at the same time. I'm like, where was my instruction mm -hmm. in that program around behavior? Like, where was my instruction on social emotional learning? Like, it 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 was a decent program, and it just wasn't there. And I don't think that was quite a long time ago. But I don't think much has actually shifted in teacher prep programs when it comes to preparing teachers specifically to work in special education and or with children with disabilities because your mm. point is well taken that it isn't just teachers going into special education who require all of this training who require this instruction who require an understanding of what ancillary service providers they're going to work with so on and so forth we don't super think of this holistically when we think about teacher prep in my opinion i think that we train our BCBAs to train our special education teachers and train our speech pathologists to work with a certain population of students, but don't think that everyone in the school, including quite frankly, administrators, is actually responsible for educating all students in their school and actually re responsible for understanding what it takes um, in terms of instruction, in terms of teaching and learning. Um, so now I'm just going to be thinking all night long, but what, what would this teacher prep program actually, like I have not wanted to look like. And when I was doing BCBA courses, um, we actually did have a panel discussion um, and we had general education teachers 
join us. And it was actually super eye-opening because it was a graduate program. And these were, you know, graduate students in education. And they were like, no idea what a what IEP stands for. Mm. It's an mm-hmm. individual something. Mm. Maybe. <laughs> and they're like, 504 sounds like a great number. Um, what's it mean? You know, it, <laughs> no, but sorry. Like, <laughs> it sounds like a great number. <laughs> it, does have a ni- it has a nice ring to it, doesn't it? It does have a nice <laughs> ring to it, but didn't you know that Ooh. 504 is actually my lucky number? Yeah. Um <laughs> But but it was just like like literally we had comments like that and it was yeah. like what? These people are going to be working in schools and even at that time it wasn't as big of a deal as it is now. Um mm. But it was still kind of, it was still a thing. Like special ed was very much a thing and inclusion was very much a thing, even at that time. Um, but I mean, not to the extent that it is now, but I, I mean, I still have administrators being like, BCBAs don't need to be in this program, but we need RBTs. And I was like, oh, no, 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 honey. You can't have one without the other. RBTs. going to supervise the RBTs. Right. And, and actually people don't realize that BCBAs have their own ethical code that are separate from special ed law. And... RBTs also have their own ethical code. Um, RBTs can lose their certification if they are not overseen by a BCBA. Mm. Oh, fascinating. Can you talk a little bit about how that partnership works? Like how, yeah, like literally how that partnership works. Because it really is a partnership. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, I wouldn't survive without mine. Um, (laughs) Well, like literally she's the best. and she keeps me sane. I feel like we're not only really great colleagues, but we also like to vent to each other. And we're like, we're really good friends. Um, so the role of an RBT really is to implement the interventions that a behavior analyst designs, um, train staff on those interventions, collect data, you know, um, and then, um, you know, are they going, they started, but yeah, she'll run, you know, preference assessments with students to find out what they like to do um, and what they like to to earn for things so we can motivate them to do their work. Um, she'll, she's my rock in crisis. Um, we're kind of like on the fly if there's multiple crises happening in one area of the building and then multiple in another area, you know. <laughs> I am very lucky enough to work in a school where we have a lot of support from administration. You know, I trust that when I'm in a meeting and I can't manage a crisis, that she will do a good job mm. doing that. Or the other day, she did a training on discrete trials um, mm. for new paraprofessionals who hadn't had that training yet. And typically, I have a hard time letting go of control. But, um, what? yeah, what? No. <laughs> um, not me. But, you know, she's very much somebody I trust around that training because she knows what she's talking about training together. Um, and she makes my data sheets for me, but she also knows, like, I have to review them. Anything that she makes, I have to okay. give my stamp of approval um, before it goes to, to anything. So the so a BCBA can do the assessments, the behavior plan design, and then the RBT is then able to take what is created by the BCBA, implement it, and then perhaps train other staff on how to implement. 
Okay, yes. Gotcha. And model. The thing that you brought up that is really important and something that we talk about, not just as it relates to behavior, but just as it relates to special education in general, is there's so much trial and error, right? Like just because we find a positive behavior support plan or BIP or just because we write an IEP doesn't mean that any of us or any of the classroom or school staff are perfect and geniuses and are going to design the best plan every time and it's going to be no fail and it's going to work 100% of the time. That's just not realistic. Um, that's just not how working with any children or students goes. And so one thing that I like that you um, have been talking a little bit about is that sort of trial and error, right? Like we go in, we see, is this working? Is this not working? Why is this not working? Maybe it's the motivator. Maybe it's we're not understanding um, the antecedent to the behavior. Maybe we're not understanding something else that's going on in the environment, the classroom, so on and so forth. And I, I just like that you pointed that out, not just in your conversation about how you work with your RBT, but just in general, right? Because one thing that we tell parents to do is like, if you're at home, right, you're not in school, you're not seeing what your child is doing for eight hours a day, seven hours a day. If you're at home and you're having questions about their IEP or something that's happening in terms of services, or you are having questions about the behavior plan and if it's working, like, don't be afraid to reach out to the team leader at the school or an administrator or the BCBA if you have that relationship and say like, is this working? Can I have some data to show whether this is working or not? Like we've been trying this particular plan for a couple of months. Can we have a conversation about it? Can I see it? Have any, like you said, have any changes been made? Can we talk about those changes? Like, like don't be afraid to be a part of that conversation because we're not, none of us are perfect. Um, none of us mm -hmm. are creating perfect plans that are going to be, like I said, no faults, no fail work every single time. We're working with human beings who have a but lot also, of things. <laughs> I, I mean, but that to that extent too, I always encourage parents to want to communicate with me on a regular basis. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Michelle knows this very well, but like, <laughs> I, I, I welcome them wanting to look at data weekly and graphs. Weekly. I welcome communication that because the trial and error, I mean, it literally could be, you know, I've, I've messaged parents before um, on an app or through email or, or whatever, called them. Someone was really off this morning. Like, you know, have you noticed anything at home? And oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they woke up at like 2 a.m. for the entire day. So they, <laughs> oh, there it is. <laughs> oh, oh, there, there it is. There it is, folks. Um, there you have it. They've been awake since 2 a.m. I'm sure I would be the same way if I were mm -hmm. since 2 a.m. Um, or, you know, there's huge medication shortages right now. Um, so it's like, oh, we, we weren't able to get their prescription filled on time. Mm -hmm. um, so they didn't have their meds this morning. Oh, okay. Really important information for us to have. Um, um, but I, I encourage parent communication as much as possible with really any ancillary service provider. Um, but particularly when it comes to behaviors, because when, when a BCBA is getting involved um, for, for a child in a school setting, it's usually because the behavior has escalated to a point where the behavior is is in some ways dangerous to either themselves or to another person. Um, and so it can be really challenging for families to hear that, um, especially if they're not seeing the same behavior at home. And so just like sometimes providing them with the graphs or the data 
and really sitting down with them and explaining, this is what we're seeing. And here's what we define it as, because aggression for one student is going to look different than aggression for another student. Tantrums for one is going to look different than another. Um, having that conversation and kind of really getting them to understand where we're coming from in terms of this is where we're at right now. It's not going to be forever, you know, and hopefully mm. it's not going to be forever. These are the skills right now we need to target so that they remain safe, so that other people remain safe, so that hopefully you continue to not see this in your home environment. Um, and also having that conversation about how home and school are very, very different environments and they need to be out of necessity. Your home is not like your office, you know, um, you need it to be different. And that's okay sometimes. And sometimes it needs to just be structured and a little differently. And, you know, consistency throughout the entire team is vital to the success of any student for any service ever on the face of the planet. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, and so like that communication with the families, if that's lacking and the student has been up since two o'clock in the morning, and all of a sudden they're having this really awful morning and they're just tantruming nonstop. And you're like, oh my God, what am I doing? Mm. Like, am I triggering the student? Like, let's try turning off the lights. Let's try doing this. Let's try doing it. Like, no, because you don't know. Like, you, you just don't know. Like, because you're not communicating with the family. They could have just easily told you they've been up since two o'clock in the morning. They're probably really tired. Right. Okay. Well, in that situation, hey, do you want to rest? Yes or no? Like, do you want to break? Yes or no? Like power nap for 20 minutes. Sometimes that 20 minute power nap is all you need. What, what would you say there are the top like three to five things that you would recommend to parents, caregivers, <laughs> if their child is struggling at school with some challenging behaviors, maybe some things, maybe it's new, maybe it's something that's been going on for a while, but now they're a little bit older. So it's makes it more challenging as they get older and bigger for them to better advocate for their children at school. There's so many things. Top three to five. I mean, communication with the school. Um, yep. I want to know exactly when they're doing it, how they're doing it, what they're, what they're doing, why they're doing. Is it with one teacher? Is it with one particular class? Is it on a certain day of the week? Uh, you know, right. I, I want to know. So in order for us to know that, like, Again, teachers really kind of need to be informed about data collection and how to go about documenting all of these things when a BCDA really isn't involved. But, you know, just really ha having the school team know too, not just the parents, but the school team needs to know that like, if something is popping up, we need to have it documented. Um, not necessarily to the detail, level of detail that like I would design, obviously, but like, you know, something as basic as like how many times do you notice if it's a particular topic that they're trying to avoid? Um, is it a particular teacher that they're trying to avoid? Do they, is it a student that they're trying to avoid? Is there a peer conflict somewhere? Um, so that's definitely, I think the communication as, as to like when it's happening, how often it's happening really needs to be there between the parent and the school team. Um, so yeah, what do you, what do you want us to do about this? Um, and, and just kind of being open about what the, the caregivers are doing at home if they do see the behavior um, or what they're doing if they don't see the behavior, but they're informed by the school that the behavior is happening. Um, are they talking to the to the child when they get home from school? Are they trying to process with the child? What happened? Like, can you tell me, like, you're not in trouble. I need to know what happened. Like, I need to know why we're trying to help you. 
Um, so I think that just kind of knowing what's been attempted to, to occur mm. um, or really kind of address it other than like punitive consequences, like um, recognizing on the school end when they should seek a behavior analyst to get involved, okay. but also trying to go through other means first. So like before people come to me in my district, they have to go through the social workers because social workers right. have a particular set of skills that they can process with students and make recommendations to the team to try to implement with students to try to teach regulation and, and, you know, self-management. Those professionals have been involved. Um, again, it really all stems back to communication. Like, yeah, yeah. Like that is like literally the only thing that I would recommend for, for families to do um, is to have this like super open communication and honest communication. Um, the school is not going to judge you on your parenting styles or your caregiving styles. They're not because, so I really feel like open, honest communication is like probably the only thing I would recommend <laughs> because like every other thing that I said really is under this umbrella of communication. Totally. That's perfect. And honestly, I think that, you know, one thing we hear from parents and caregivers a lot is that either they're nervous, like you said, to reach out to the school or to a school team member for any number of different reasons, and or they're in a position where they're just like, I don't know anything. I'm deferring to the school staff that is trained in this, that has education in this, mm -hmm. so on and so forth. And in both of those scenarios, what we tell parents is, no, but actually you are the expert. This is your child. This child is living with you in your home, parents and caregivers and family members. You are a vital part of this conversation. You're a vital part of the team and you really are truly an expert. No, you might not be trained in the same analysis that a BCBA is. You might not be trained in the same, you know, teaching and learning and curriculum and so on and so forth that the teacher is, but that does not mean that you don't have something to contribute to the conversation. That doesn't mean that you are not an incredibly important part of communicating and, and being a part of that, that team. Um, so thank you for, for saying that. And I, totally agree with you that, you know, not just when it comes to behavior, but many facets, most facets of school. I think that that's probably the best advice that we could give mm -hmm. to, to parents and caregivers is don't be afraid to communicate with us. Don't be afraid to talk to us, be a part of the team, etc. It's actually kind of sad to see like how nervous people do get to communicate. I know. Almost like they're mm -hmm. going to be, I'm actually, you know, I'm a parent of three small children that are in daycare and like even their daycare teachers sometimes like their the toddler teacher who who had my daughter and now has my my twin boys they um she comes up to me and she's like oh Karen like I have to talk to you about something <laughs> and I was like oh come on you know me by now just give it to me straight like I'm, <laughs> like what they do now like and she's like, how do I? And I was like, just give it to me. Just it <laughs> But, you know, I would, but um, just like seeing a teacher of 15 month old children get so nervous to talk to a parent about how to redirect their hitting or how to redirect mm -hmm. throwing things. 
And I'm like, who yelled at you? Like, <laughs> I'm like, you're traumatized. Um, but you know, I, like it goes back to just like basic respect. I feel like, um, mm. you know, recognizing that, yeah. Okay, fine. I'm the expert in behavior. Whoop-de-doo. Um, you're the expert in your child, you know, mm-hmm. and what I can give you all the behavioral recommendations that I want, but if the child isn't buying into it, you're going to know because yeah. like your, your mom, your dad, your auntie, your whomever, your, who's your grandma, whoever's caring for them on the daily basis. Like they're going to know what's going to work and what's not going to work. So I think we'll name this episode. I'm the behavior specialist. Whoop to do. I think that's. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I'm the behavior. Ex- I'm the behavior expert. Whoop to do. I think that's what we'll name this episode. I think we should. Um, Welcome to and- ABA 101. Whoop to do. <laughs> and like we told you, an hour goes by really, really fast around here. Um, so that is our time for today. Thank you so much for joining us. Yay. I think I, I think I put a pin in about five other offshoot <laughs> topics that we could have also taken an hour. On. Like so, a, like five so there might be a maybe? part two. I think there's eventually at some yeah. point. At some point, we're looking at a part two, um, for Let's sure. Let's do a part but, two. Let's do it. <laughs> but in the meantime, thank you, Karen, so much for yes. joining us um, on the podcast and sharing uh, your background, your knowledge, some really super helpful tips for both parents and school teams um, when it comes to behavior. We are grateful for you joining us. Everybody else, we're grateful for you listening. And that is all for today. And we will see you, hear you next week on the Empower to Advocate podcast. Goodbye, everybody. Thank you. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode. We hope that what you just heard is easy for you to understand and you are able to go ahead and implement it and take action right away. We always love to hear from you and how things worked out for you or what questions you have. Please email us at empoweredtoadvocate at gmail.com or visit us at empoweredtoadvocate.com and schedule your 20-minute consult with us today so we can find out how we can best support you to best support your child. See you next week. To our podcast or participating in one of our live webinars or sessions, you acknowledge that Empowered to Advocate provide thoughtful, comprehensive, and data-driven coaching and advice. By participating, you understand that this service is not legal advice, nor does it constitute legal services. It is understood that E2A is serving in the role of coach and consultant to you on your child's behalf. In participating or listening, the parent or caregiver understands that there are no guarantees of success in obtaining the outcome desired by the parent or caregiver. The parent or caregiver agrees to hold empowered to advocate and any coaches working with them harmless with regard to the outcome of meetings, services, hearings, etc.